Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 30th, 2015, and my guest is Philip Tetlock, the Annenberg University professor affiliated with the Wharton School and the School of Arts and Sciences at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the author, along with Dan Gardner, of Super Forecasting, the Art and Science of Prediction, which is the subject of today's episode. Philip, welcome to EconTalk. Well, thank you. So you start with a lot of criticisms, or throughout the book, I'd say you have a lot of criticisms of pundits. Uh, some of those have PhDs, and some of them are journalists, and some are just so-called experts who make predictions. But it turns out a lot of those, you can't really hold their feet to the fire uh, when it comes time to judge whether their predictions are accurate or not. Are they good forecasters or not? And why is that? What's the challenge with our sort of day-to-day uh, world or where people claim that something's going to happen and print it in the newspaper? Well, the pundits uh, of whom you think, of whom you say we're critical, um, you're probably thinking of people like Tom Friedman or Niall Ferguson, people on the left or people on the right. Uh, we we uh, we identify uh, all sorts, um, but they're all pretty uniform. They're they're pretty uniformly very smart people. Uh, they're they're uh, very articulate. Uh, they're very knowledgeable. Um, they offer, may uh, make many observations about world politics and economics that uh, seem very insightful. Um, it is extremely difficult, however, uh, to gauge the degree to which their assessments of um, possible futures, of the consequences of going down one policy path or another, are correct or incorrect because they rely almost exclusively on what we call vague verbiage forecasting. Uh, they don't say that there's a 20% likelihood of something happening or an 80% likelihood of something happening. They say things like, well, it's a distinct possibility that there'll be a global deflation in 2016. Now, when you ask people what distinct possibility could mean, uh, it could mean anything from about 20% to 80% probability, uh, depending on uh, the mood they're in when they're listening. I, I didn't mean to suggest you're critical of them, although you sometimes are. But you're, you're critical of the of our culture that takes these vague pronouncements, and then there's a gotcha game that gets played by people on the other side. But of course, there's always a way to weasel out of it because there's usually some hedging in that in that verbiage. Correct. Well, that that that's right. Um, if, if you if you exist in a blame game culture uh, in which uh, people are going to pounce on you whenever you make an explicit probability judgment that that appears to be on the wrong side of maybe, it's pretty rational to retreat into vague verbiage. So we talk in the book about um, a, a brilliant journalist, the New York Times journalist, uh, David Leonhardt, who created The Upshot, a quantitative column in The New York Times. Um, and he wrote a piece back in, I guess it was 2011 or 2012, and the Supreme Court narrowly upheld Obamacare by a 5-4 margin. And the prediction markets had been putting a 75% probability on the law being overturned. Um, and David Leonhardt, who doesn't have any grudge against prediction markets, as far as I know, uh, concluded that the prediction markets got it wrong. Um, now, that's that's 
a harsh judgment on the prediction markets because they make hundreds of predictions on hundreds of different issues over years. And they're not bad. When they say there's a 75% likelihood of something happening, it's pretty close to a 75% likelihood, which means that 25% of the time it doesn't happen. So if you're going to throw at a very well-calibrated forecasting system every time it's on the wrong side of maybe, you're not going to have any well-calibrated forecasting systems uh, at your disposal. I would say that's a second problem, really, which is that even when you do quantify your prediction, by definition, you're allowing the possibility that it doesn't happen. And then the question is, how do you assess the accuracy or judgment of the person who makes a, a statement like that? Yes, exactly. And, 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 that, and that requires some, some understanding of probability and uh, some, willing, some patience and some willingness to look at track records over time. So let's begin with your particular track record. You've done a lot of research in this area, this question of whether prediction is possible, how accurate is it, are experts good at forecasting? Talk about your background. Uh, we're going to get to the, the tournament that's at the heart of your book, uh, but I want to start with your research history and what what you found in the past and uh, how people reacted to it. Well, I guess that's another way of asking you just exactly how old must I be? Uh, because I've, I've been doing longitudinal forecasting tournaments for a long time. So let's just put on the table. I'm, I'm, I'm 61 years old and I got started at, at this uh, after, right after I got tenure at the University of California, Berkeley. And I, I was, I was a, little, a little more than 30 years old. It was 1984. Um, and the Soviet Union still existed. Gorbachev had yet to become uh, general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Uh, and we, we did our initial pilot studies back in the mid-1980s when people were, or hawks and doves were arguing about the best ways of dealing with the Soviet Union. Uh, and now we're doing forecasting tournaments as hawks and doves are arguing about the best ways of dealing with the Iranian nuclear program, or for that matter, for dealing with Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, so we've been running forecasting tournaments off and on for uh, 30 plus years. Um, the first big set of forecasting tournaments were done in the late 80s and the early 90s and were reported in a book, Expert Political Judgment, uh, that came out uh, in 2005. Uh, and uh, the second wave of forecasting tournaments were uh, much larger, uh, involving many thousands of forecasters, a million plus forecasts, and were sponsored by the U.S. intelligence community. And they ran from 2011 to 2015. And in fact, they're still running. Uh, so if your readers are interested in signing up for an ongoing forecasting tournament, they should consider visiting the website at uh, gjopen.com. Going back to the the earlier work that you did in before the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, what was the what were some of the main empirical takeaways from that work? Well, one big takeaway was that um, liberals and conservatives had very different policy prescriptions, and they had very different conditional forecasts about what would happen if you went down one policy path or another. Um, and that nobody really came close to predicting the Gorbachev phenomenon. Nobody, for that matter, came really close to predicting the disintegration of the Soviet Union later on. But everyone, after the fact, seemed to have an explanation uh, that um, I, I either appropriated credit or deflected blame. And it was consistent with their worldview, I'm sure. <laughs> and meshed perfectly with their prior worldview. So so it, it was as though we were in an outcome-irrelevant learning situation. It didn't really matter what happened. People would, were, would, would be in an excellent position to uh, interpret what happened as consistent with their prior views. Um, 
And this, this and is- the idea of forecasting tournaments was to um, make it easier for people to remember their past states of ignorance. Well, this is an aside of sorts, but it's just a, it's just a wonderful insight into human nature, and it's a, a theme here at uh, at Econ Talk, which is when you went back and asked people to give their what they remember as their probability of, say, the Soviet Union falling. Uh, what what did they say? Well, they, they they certainly thought they assigned a higher probability to the dissolution of the Soviet Union than they did. And there were a few people who assigned really very low probabilities who remember being on assigning higher than a 50 percent probability. So uh, people really pumped up those probabilities retrospectively. Uh, so the psychologists called that the hindsight bias or the I knew it all along effect. Um, and uh, we we saw that in spades um, in the uh, the Soviet forecasting tournament. Yeah, I, I I think that's an incredibly important thing that we all tend to do. Uh, we tend to think we had much more vision than we actually had, and we usually don't write those things down. You happen to have written some of them down, so that was awkward that they actually had their original forecast. But most of us, um, the I knew it all along problem is is a bigger problem for most of us because we don't write it down. Well, we truly remember it differently. Even if you think the person on the other side of the table knows what the correct answer is, you still tend to misremember it. Yeah. So this more recent tournament uh, was rather remarkable. Uh, give us the background of of who competed uh, and your role in it and how it was set up and what some of the uh, the questions, for example, were that, that people were competing on. Sure. This was work I did jointly with my my wife, uh, research collaborator, Barb Mellers, and and we were faculty then at the University of California, Berkeley, and we didn't leave for University of Pennsylvania until about 2010. But we were visited by um, uh, three people from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence when we were at Berkeley, I guess late in 2009. Um, and at least two of them were quite enthusiastic about the idea of the U.S. intelligence community uh, using some of the techniques that were employed in my earlier work, expert political judgment, for keeping score on the accuracy of intelligence analyst judgments. Um, and that was the core idea behind the what became known as the IARPA forecasting tournaments. IARPA is the research and development branch of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, uh, which is the umbrella organization over all intelligence agencies like CIA and DIA and um, and uh, so forth, um, and all, all sixteen of them. Uh, and the the idea would be would be uh, they they would have a competition, and uh, major universities and consulting operations would would apply for large contracts to assemble teams whose purpose would be to assign the most realistic probability estimates to possible futures uh, that the U.S. community, U.S. intelligence community deemed to be of national security relevance. So those, could, those turned out to be questions on everything from Sino-Japanese clashes in the East China Sea to uh, uh, Greece leaving the Eurozone and Spanish bond yield spreads to uh, Russian relations with the near abroad, Estonia, Ukraine, Georgia. Um, uh, of course, conflicts in the Middle East, uh, Ebola, H5N1 issues, just an enormous range of issues. Uh, 500 plus questions over about four years. Um, and the goal would be of each of the uh, research operations would, would be to come up with the best possible ways of assigning probability estimates. 
Now, it, they, they, they screened everybody for their academic uh, bona fides, so they wanted to make sure that everybody was legit. They weren't using Ouija boards or anything like that. But yeah, that, beyond that, that they, 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 <laughs> <laughs> they, they, now the U.S. intelligence community was simply interested in who could generate the most accurate probability estimates for these extremely diverse questions. Um, and they didn't really care whether we took a more psychological approach or more statistical approach or a composite approach. Uh, what they what they cared about was accuracy, and that was it: accuracy, accuracy, accuracy. Uh, so we, uh, our our group, we, Barb, Barb, my my wife and I, uh, put together this group called the Good Judgment Group, which is an interdisciplinary consortium of of, of wonderful scholars, and we went out about. We, we, we tried to recruit good forecasters who, and we tried to give them the best possible training and principles of good probabilistic reasoning. And we uh, assembled some of them into teams and we gave them guidance on how teams can work effectively together. And we put some of them into prediction markets and we wanted to see how well prediction markets would work. Um, we, we did, we experimented with a lot of different approaches. And we also had re really good statisticians who experimented with different ways of distilling wisdom from crowds. So our approach was very experimental. I think some of the other approaches were experimental as well. Um, but our experiments worked out better than their experiments. So we won the tournament by pretty resounding margins in the first two years, sufficiently resounding that the U.S. intelligence community decided to funnel the remaining money into one big group, which would be the Good Judgment Project, which could hire some of the, the best researchers from other teams. Who, who are you um, competing against? Well, we originally we were competing Different different competitive benchmarks here. Originally, we were competing against uh, the other uh, institutions that received contracts from the government, like um, oh gosh, MIT and University of Michigan and George Mason University, places like that. Uh, then later, and we were competing against a prediction market that we ourselves were running uh, by a firm known as Inkling, and also um, against internal benchmarks, uh, U.S. intelligence analysts themselves uh, uh, generating probability estimates and uh, competing against them, although that was classified because, of course, the U.S. Uh, intelligence analysts uh, were classified. But David Ignatius at the Washington Post leaked some of that information, um, in, I think, at the end of the second year or third year. But after two years, you, your team trounced everybody, and then what happened going forward after that? Well, we were able to absorb resources from the other teams um, because the government was obviously saving a lot of money by, by suspending the funding of the other teams. So we were able to consolidate some resources, and we were able to compete all the more aggressively against the, the, other, the remaining benchmarks. The key benchmarks for us to beat were an external benchmark, uh, the prediction market uh, run by Inkling, um, and um, the um, more confidential one inside the U.S. government. Now, you mentioned, and this is just, uh, well, actually, I'm going to read a quote um, from the book, which I loved, uh, which is uh, relevant, which is uh, from uh, Galen, the uh, <laughs> early uh, early physician. And w what time period did Galen live, roughly? I get, was he a, a second century after Christ? I, yeah, it was roughly 2,000 years ago. Okay, I thought he was later than that. So, so he wrote a long time ago, and uh, you write the following that um, uh, he wasn't into experiments, and, and you wrote the following that he here, – here's the quote. Galen was untroubled by doubt. Each outcome confirmed he was right no matter how equivocal the evidence might look to someone less wise than the master. Here's Galen's quote. All who drink of this treatment recover in a short time, except those whom it does not help who all die. 
It is obvious, therefore, that it fails only in incurable cases. So what could be better than that? I mean, that's phenomenal. And I was reminded, I, I think you were, that's where you apply the quote, of the even the pundit who puts a numerical value on a, on a certain event happening is a 63.7% chance that this will happen, whether it happens or not. If it does happen, he says, see, I told you it was 63.7. And if it doesn't happen, he can say, well, I, I said there was a 36.3% chance that it wouldn't happen. And so when it didn't happen, I'm still right. So the question then becomes, when you say you trounced the other teams, there has to be a way to evaluate uh, probabilities. And in the book, you present the Breyer score. So try to give us uh, the flavor of how you measured success in prediction. Oh, that's, that's an excellent point. Uh, you, you, it really isn't possible to measure the accuracy of a probability judgment of an individual event. Uh, unless the person, the forecaster, is rash enough to assign a probability of zero and it happens, or a probability of 1.0 and it doesn't happen. Otherwise, the forecaster can always argue that something improbable happened. Uh, so assessing the accuracy of individual events is impossible, um, except in those limiting cases. But it is possible to assess the accuracy across many events and many time periods. Uh, so good judgment in world politics means you're better than other people at assigning higher probabilities to things that happen than to things that don't happen across many events, many time periods. So the, the example would be, uh, let's talk about it. Let's take a particular example. We're going to we're gonna try to forecast the probability of um, Greece leaving the Eurozone. So I say it's 0.51 and you say, um, excuse me, I say it's – I, I let's say go it's the 0.15. Other way. No, let's go I, the I other say it's way. 0.15. Yeah, okay, I'm going to go 0.49 because I think okay. it's not likely. <laughs> I'm, I'm going because it's below 0.5. I say okay. 0.49 and you say 0.1 and it doesn't happen. So right. the argument is that you did a better job than I did. You don't know that for sure. No, you don't. With respect to <laughs> Brexit. That's correct. Uh, you do know it probabilistically across the full range of questions posed in the IARPA tournament. Now, insofar as you've been predicting 0.49 consistently over several years, and I've been predicting 0.1 and it doesn't happen, you might be tempted to draw the conclusion, even with respect to Grexit, that I've been closer to the truth. You might be. So I, one of the things I found troubling about the the setup and the way of assessing good judgment, and it one of the things your book makes one ponder is just how hard it is to assess whether someone has good judgment. Uh, it's it's um, that's absolutely true. It's, I, it's I couldn't deep, agree more. It's, it's a, a, it's deep, a, it's a deep, very difficult concept <laughs> to operationalize. <laughs> yeah. So this particular way, uh, even though, so let's take this case. Let's say there's ten things where I tended to predict point four five, and you predicted point point one, and none of them happened. So that. We were both, quote, right in that we both thought it was below a half. It was less likely. But you were, quote, more right than I was because because what? And here's, here's, where my, here's what I want you to, to respond to. It seems to me you could argue you just had more confidence than I did. You were more strategic in how you picked your number. You didn't have any more accurate knowledge of the actual probability. Well, how many how many times did you have to flip that coin before you decided that the person who claims the coin is biased uh, is closer to correct than the person who claims the coin is uh, very close to equilibrium? 
Well, that's a challenging question. I, I thought while I was reading the book, I thought of uh, Bill Miller of Leg Mason. So Bill Miller mm. beat the S&P 500, I think, for at least 15 years in a row, maybe more. And a lot of people concluded he had to be a genius because, well, he beat the S&P 500. One year, not so impressive. But 15 years, that's so unlikely. But, of course, we know that that doesn't prove he's a genius. It doesn't even prove he's smart. It might merely mean he was lucky. Out of the thousands and tens of thousands of managers of mutual funds, he was the one who happened to beat the S&P 500 15 years in a row. And we know that over enough time and enough managers, that's going to happen. And so we know nothing about his ability going forward. And in fact, he didn't do particularly well after his streak was broken. Did he get less smart? Did he get overconfident? We have no way of knowing. So I, I find myself, uh, even though I, I, I found many things in the book that are useful in thinking thoughtfully about looking into the future, the fundamental measurement technique strikes me as a challenge. What do you say to that? I think that is a great question. <laughs> it's a really, really deep question. Um, people in finance argue, uh, of course, about whether there is such a thing as good judgment. If you're a really strong believer in the efficient markets hypothesis, you're going to be very skeptical. Um, if you toss enough coins enough times, a few of them are bound to wind up heads 70, 60, 70, 80 times in a row. Uh, you can just keep, keep doing that. Uh, and it, it, there are skeptics who argue that um, Bill Miller, or for that matter, Warren Buffett or George Soros, um, were just one of those lucky sequences of, of coin flips. And then we anoint them geniuses. Uh, we uh, are very sensitive to the possibility that uh, super forecasters could be super lucky. Um, and we're always open to the possibility that any given super forecaster has been super lucky. We're always looking for patterns of regression toward the mean. Uh, the more chance there is in a task, uh, the greater the regression toward the mean effect. Um, and that's just something we're continually looking for. Uh, our best estimates are that the geopolitical forecasting tournament sponsored by IARPA had about a 70-30 uh, skill luck ratio based on the regression toward the mean of, uh, effects that we were observing. Uh, which means there's a big element of skill and there's a significant element of luck. And, uh, it, it, and based on other factors, like we, we, we introduce experimental manipulations that reliably improve accuracy. Uh, if it were pure noise, it, would, it wouldn't be possible to do that. So it wouldn't be possible to develop training modules or teaming mechanisms that improve accuracy if we were dealing with a radically noisy dependent variable. Um, it is possible to do that. So various converging lines of evidence, both individual difference evidence among the forecasters and experimental evidence suggest that we're not dealing with a radically indeterminate uh, phenomenon here. There, there is such a thing as good judgment, uh, but there is certainly a significant element of luck as well. And one of the challenges when you read uh, Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger's partner's analysis of the market, they're really smart. They're full of interesting insights, right? So it reinforces your view that it, maybe it's not luck. The challenge, of course, is that you don't know whether those particular insights really matter uh, that's true. In, the, in the universe <laughs> of things that matter. And that's, that's that. Yeah, so, uh, we, 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 are, we are in complete agreement on this subject. <laughs> let's take let's take an example from the book, which I found really um, illuminating, which uh, is an example of how. There, there is a role for skill, 
uh, at least in some forecasting problems and some estimation problems, uh, which is you give the example of uh, you're told that there's a family, their last name is Renzetti, they have an only child. What are the odds that they have a pet? And talk about how you might think about that more thoughtfully than just saying, well, I don't know, or worse, well, if they have an only child, that's important. And the inside-outside distinction I found very illuminating. (laughs) Well, um, it's part of a more general discussion in the book about what distinguishes super forecasters from regular forecasters. And that is the tendency of the super forecasters uh, to start with the outside view and gradually work in. So uh, you would start with your you would start your initial estimate, whether it's you know trying to estimate number of piano tuners in Chicago, or whether a particular family has a pet, or whether a particular African dictator is likely to survive in power another year. All those kinds of examples. You would start by saying, well, what's the base rate of survival, or what's the base rate of pets? What, what, so we, another example is this um, African dictator problem. Uh, you, you, we might ask you a question about whether dictator X in country Y is likely to survive in power for another year. And you might shrug and say, you know, I barely heard of the country, less still the dictator. Um, but you do know a couple of things. You know more than you think you know. Uh, and one of them is that once a, if a dictator has been in power more than a, um, um, a year or two, the likelihood of the dictator being in power uh, another year is very high. It's a 90, 90% plus. Um, so you could, even though you know nothing about the dictator or the country, you can say, well, I know that once someone has established a power base within a country, it's difficult to dislodge them. Now, if, so you, you would start your, you would start your estimation process with a high probability because of that fact. Uh, it's just a simple demonstrable statistical fact. And then you would say, well, now, now I better do a little bit of research and find out a little bit about this guy and his country. And if you discovered that this particular person is 91 years old and has advanced prostate cancer, you might want to modify your probability. If you discover there are, there, there's fighting in the suburbs of the capital, uh, you might want to modify your probability. Um, so these are, um, It captures part of the distinctive working style of the super forecasters is that they uh, try to get as much initial statistical leverage on the problem as they can before they delve into the messy historical details. And I I think all of us like the idea of evidence-based medicine, evidence-based forecasting, and and your book is certainly a, a tribute to the potential for data and statistics to help improve our ability to anticipate events that are important. I guess the challenge is which evidence and and how we incorporate the other factors. I mean, one of the, you tell a lot of really interesting stories of the way the different forecasters, many of whom are just, quote, amateurs, which is beautiful. They're not burdened by the PhD that uh, that uh, I have and that others have who, who, who tend to try to predict things. Um, so you talk a lot about how they weigh evidence. Part I find uh, intellectually challenging in accepting these results is there's sort of two issues. One is, and I w- want to make it clear, these amateur teams that you put together along with experts and the aggregation of folks into teams with advice on how to uh, how to work together and how to avoid groupthink, which is a large part of the book. Very, very interesting and very useful, I think, to anybody. In, in all of these examples, uh, they, they dominate. It's not like they do three percentage points better than the others. I just want to make that clear, right? It's a, They really did a lot better than just 
some of the more uh, educated folk and, and the so-called experts, correct? Well, when you throw everything together, the cumulative advantage does get to be quite staggering over the ordinary folks in the tournament. That's true. Um, but you were talking about different components here. Uh, it, it, it certainly helps to have talent and to get the right people on the bus. So individual differences among super, super forecasters are not just regular people. Uh, they are different in certain measurable ways. They score higher in measures of fluid intelligence. They're more politically knowledgeable. They're more open-minded. But most important, I don't think I think they have all those advantages uh, over regular folks, and I don't know, and those matter. Uh, but I don't think they have those advantages over professional intelligence analysts. I don't right. think they have greater fluid intelligence. Greater, they definitely don't have greater knowledge. Uh, and I don't really think they're more, even more open-minded, although they are pretty open-minded. Uh, I think what really distinguishes the super forecasters from the seasoned professionals in the intelligence community, uh, whom they were able to outperform, and that was really, I thought, the most difficult of all the benchmarks, uh, I think what really distinguishes them is that they believe that subjective probability estimation is a skill that can be cultivated and is worth cultivating. I think many of the sophisticated analysts, like many of the sophisticated pundits, when they, when they see a question like, well, how likely is, is Greece to leave the Eurozone or how likely is, is Putin to try to annex more Ukrainian territory, they'll, they'll shrug and they'll say, look, this is a unique historical event. There's no way we can assign a probability to this. You should have learned this in Statistics 101. You, know, you, can, you, can make probab you can learn to make refined probability judgments in poker and things like that. You can learn to distinguish 60-40 bets from 40-60 bets in poker because in poker, you're, have, you have repeated play and a well-defined sampling universe and the, the, the frequentest statistics everybody learns in Stat 101 apply. Those statistics just don't apply here. So you're engaging in an exercise in pseudo-precision. So you've got yeah. people with really high IQs, you have people with really high IQs saying really smart things like this, yeah. <laughs> and it blocks them from exploring the potential of learning to do it better, which is which I think is, is what the IR tournament proved is possible. Now, I want to try to take that criticism. I'll put it, phrase it a little differently. Uh, if if you asked me, uh, let's predict. Uh, there's a football game. It's, we're, we're recording this on a Monday. There's a football game tonight. It's the uh, Cleveland Browns against the Baltimore Ravens, if I remember correctly. It's not a very interesting game. And we want to try to figure out the probability that uh, Baltimore is going to win. I, th I, I think they're probably favored, okay? So they're supposed to win, but we know that they might not. So we'd like to know, though, what the probability is. Now, there are many ways to go about this question. The way the people in your book go about it, is they take a base rate, or this is one of the ways, they would take a base rate like we talked about a minute ago, uh, how many dictators who've been in office X years are in office an, an additional year, or in the case of the pet example, you didn't mention it, but in the book you talk about what's the proportion of households that have pets. Uh, that would be a great starting place. You start with that, and then you dig deeper and you try to find out more stuff. It's First of all, it's really hard to know what the base rate is uh, because is it the base rate of underdogs on a Monday night? Is the base rates of teams that have lost two games in a row? So what then people start to do, and they can do it in football, it's harder to, a lot harder to do with Greece exiting the Euro, is they try to accumulate statistical evidence that, you know, in a systematic way, they run re multivariate regressions. And they're pretty good at that because the nature of football, we're pretty good at narrowing down. We, we can look at past performance. We can take account of injuries that can mess things up. We'll never know 
Uh, as Hayek pointed out in a different context, uh, we'll never know if the quarterback had an un- unsettling uh, argument with his uh, with his wife the night before or a bad meal at lunch that's that's affecting his play. But in football, we we, we can get pretty good at, at predicting probabilities, but we don't have those tools. And in fact, in, when we look at, say, Greece exiting, and worse than that, when we do have those tools, we often can't do it very well. So we try to, say, estimate in epidemiology the effect of drinking a lot of coffee, uh, whether you're more likely to get cancer. We can't measure that. So how are these people somehow absorbing all this information, which you, you talk about how they, they read a lot and they, they, they're very, they talk and they share ideas and they bounce ideas off each other when they were doing this. How are they able to somehow hone in with an accuracy without, without using a formal statistical model that even when we use formal statistical models, we can't do very well? Yeah. Well, they are opportunistic, and sometimes they do find statistical models in unlikely places. And you know, one of the first places they would go for your football game is they look at look at Las Vegas and what the odds are. They go, you know, they 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 um, they, 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 they they would do they would do what you might superficially consider to be cheating. They would say, well, we, there are there are some very efficient information aggregators already out there. Like there's Nate Silver and Five Thirty Eight, and there's this and there's that. And I'm going to take a look at each of those, and I'm going to average those, and I'm going to take that as my initial estimate. And then if I know something about the quarterback's relationship with his spouse. I might factor that in too, but I'm probably not going to give very much weight to it. Um, and that, that, that turns out to be a pretty good strategy. Um, you're raising a deep philosophical question about the limits of precision. And, and I think it's just wonderful. Uh, it's a, it's a, this is one of the best interviews I've had, I think. It is a deep question. And why don't we just say, I don't know the answer to what the, where the limits of precision are. You don't know what the answer is. Why don't we run studies like the ARPA tournament and find out where they are? And that's essentially what ARPA did. It adopted a very pragmatic attitude and said, you know, we could, we could, we could, you know, could get, get hunker down in philosophical positions. And you, you could, I could say, I'm a Bayesian and you're a frequentist. And I think we can, we can make probability estimations here. And you think, no, there's, it's, there's just too much noise and there's not enough learning opportunities. Um, we, we, we could argue about that until the cows come home. But what really the right thing to do here is to run forecasting tournaments and explore what the limits of precision are. And, and, and the limit, there, there are real limits of precision in the ARPA tournament. I mean, the very best forecasters on average are not doing much better than assigning 75% probabilities to things that happen and 25% probabilities to things that don't. Um, so there's still a lot of residual uncertainty here. There, there are big pockets of irreducible uncertainty in, in the tournament. There, there's, there's lots of room for error. Uh, they make lots of errors. Um, we, we, what we simply showed is that it's possible to do something that very smart people previously supposed was pretty impossible. Let me ask a different question. Um, I guess there's two issues related to that empirical uh, finding. One would be, could you do it again? Right? It would be a question of replication. Could you replicate the success with the same team? Do you think they would continue to outperform uh, the benchmarks? That'd be the first question. Uh, the second question is, what do you do with it? So, um, uh, well, I'll let you answer the first one first. Do you, is there any plans to try to replicate uh, um, replicate these results? Well, we're doing that. 
uh, IARP is doing exactly the right thing. They're, they're setting up a mechanism for exploring how replicable these results are. So we're going to be running more forecasting tournaments. One of the reasons I invited your readers to participate in GJ Open is they can explore their skills, and who knows, there might be some super forecasters listening right now. Here, here. I guess, and then the next question would be, is this really valuable? Um, so you have to have contingencies often. You want to have contingency plans for the contingencies that could happen. So you 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 want to know whether it's really likely that Greece will leave the the eurozone, or you want to know whether China's going to do such and such uh, militarily. You want to know if there's going to be a coup in this or that country. But it, it, does it affect our actions to know that it's really 73% rather than 58. So what's the consequences of is is improve do you really do you believe that improving those probabilities are um are going to lead to better policy? You know, again, I I I don't at the risk of flattering the interviewer. That's <laughs> just a superb question. Uh, uh, it, it depends on the domain. Uh, if we were talking about pricing uh, futures options on oil, uh, I think Wall Street professionals would say, yeah, I would really want to know the difference between a 60-40 probability and a 40-60 probability. Aaron Brown, the chief risk officer of AQR, said as much when we interviewed him for the book, and I know that's a common attitude among people in the hedge fund world. Uh, so in that world, options pricing and finance, I don't think there's much question about it. Poker, I don't think there's much question about it. Now, if we had an opportunity to talk to a senior official in the U.S. intelligence community about the project a year or so ago, and we asked, well, if you had known that the probability of a Russian incursion into the Ukraine was not up uh, 1%, but was 20% during the Sochi Olympics, uh, would you have done something different? Uh, and it, we got an interesting reaction. <laughs> it was Boy, I've never, I've never even heard a question like that before. Um, That's and, fascinating, uh, and, and it is, a, it is a fascinating problem, and it, 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 it raises very deep questions. I think the short answer is everybody would agree you're not worse off with better probability estimates uh, than worse probability estimates in the long run. Uh, I don't think there's any. The, the, the question would be, are the increments, improvements in accuracy we're able to achieve, do they translate into enough better decisions in a given domain to justify the cost of achieving those improvements? I think that would be your question in the intelligence context. And that is, I think, something that the intelligence community is quite sensibly exploring right now. But I think the other question is, you might lead yourself down a path of thinking you've got more certainty than you actually do. So there's a down there's a downside risk also of using a a more organized method, even though we all want to, we all think that's got to be better. It doesn't have to be, unfortunately. Right, but 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 the opposite error is is also possible. I mean, psychologists, you're right, tend to emphasize the dangers of overconfidence, but there's also the danger of underconfidence. Yep. So we talk about the situation in which President Obama was making the decision about whether to go after Osama bin Laden, and um, he was probably. He, he drew an underconfident conclusion, we think, from the probability judgments that were offered to him in that room. Um, when you have people with different expertise and different points of view, all offering probabilities, almost all of them offering probabilities uh, on the, uh, above 50%, uh, what's the right way to process those probabilities? Should you simply take the median? Or should you take something more extreme than the median? And that was one of the issues our, our statisticians wrestled with. I mean, treat it as a thought experiment. 
In a thought experiment, you're the president of the United States. You, around you, you have a table of elite advisors, each of whom offers you a probability estimate that Osama bin Laden is residing in a mystery compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. And each one says, I th Mr. President, I think there's a 0.7 probability. And the next one, 0 0.7, 0 0.7, all around the table, uniform 0.7. What conclusion should the president of the United States draw about whether Osama is there and whether to con consider going to the next step of launching a Navy SEAL attack? Well, uh, the short answer is it depends on uh, whether the advisors are clones of each other or not. If they're clones of each other, the answer is 70%. They're all drawing on the same information. They're processing it in the same ways. 70%. There's no incremental information provided by each 70%. But if they're drawing on different types of evidence and, diff and processing it in different ways, there's one guy with satellite information, another is a code breaker, another is human intelligence, and so forth. If they're drawing on different sorts of information, processing it in different ways, each of them still arriving at 70%. But not knowing all the information the other people had when they reached their 70%, now what's the correct probability? And the answer as I've, to the question I've just posed is mathematically indeterminate, but it's statistically estimatable. And we did statistically estimate it over and over again during the course of the IRPA tournament. It was one of the big drivers of our forecasting success. And typically in the IRPA tournament, you would, you would extremize. You'd move from 70% to 85 or 90%. Well, you know more. You, you, there, you know more than you think you did. Explain. Um, well, when you said you'd move, I didn't. I didn't understand. You're saying that's what you would discover. Explain well, that. Um, it, it, it's it's a question of who your advisors are. If your advisors are all drawing on the same information and reaching seventy percent, the answer is. When you average their judgments, it's just going to be 70%. And you only have really have one estimate, and you're fooling yourself if you think you have 10. That's right. Uh, but if the advisors are all saying 70%, but they're drawing on diverse sources of information, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but the answer is going to be quite a bit more extreme than 70%. Now, how much more extreme is going to be a function of how diverse the types of information are and how much expertise is in the room? And these are difficult to quantify things for sure. Uh, what our statisticians did is they used uh, an extremizing algorithm that simply when, when, the, when the, the weighted average of the best forecasters was tilted in, on one side of maybe or another, uh, they extremized it. They moved from 30% uh, down to 15 or from 70% up to 85. You're saying they, when they had that average estimate of 70, they actually, f they were they pretended it was higher. They gave it more confidence than, than just the 10 because they drew on different information. Well, our statisticians, we, we submitted forecasts at 9 a.m. Eastern time every day during the forecasting tournament. So there's no wiggle room here. I mean, this is very carefully monitored research, right? This doesn't have the problems of some research where, you know, people can have, have wiggle room. There's no wiggle room here. This is being run like a bank uh, with, with, with transactions every day. And we were betting on those aggregation algorithms. Uh, and and that, that, that particular extremizing algorithm I'm describing in, in verbal terms right now uh, was essentially the forecasting tournament winner. It was more accurate than 99% of the individual super forecasters from whom the algorithm itself was largely derived. Yeah, I just want to emphasize again, though, going back to our earlier uh, discussion, is that it didn't really mean that the number was 0 0.8 or 0 0.9. I'm not sure that's a meaningful number, just that you were more confident 
that it was Osama bin Laden, say, than the 0.7, than the 0.7 number suggested. That would give some comfort to the president in launching a SEAL attack, uh, knowing another way to say it would be that even though they all thought it was more likely than not, 0.7, if it came from different sources of information, you could be more confident it was more likely than not. It was even closer to certain. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, I, I want to come back to the wisdom of crowds in a minute and the aggregation issue, but we're, since we're talking about a president making a decision, you have some interesting thoughts on how a leader balances humility with confidence. And I find, you know, I've, we talk about this on the program a lot. I'm, I, I'm skeptical, but sometimes I'm too skeptical. I have, I, I need to be more skeptical about my skepticism because I have trouble accepting things that might be true that go against my skeptical beliefs. <laughs> so you deal with that uh, in the book uh, that a leader, most leaders are not very skeptical. They they seem to be bold. Winston Churchill uh, be a quintessential example you mentioned. They they don't. They don't say, well, it could be 73 or 80. It's, they say, well, we know the truth. We got to move forward. Talk about it, this issue of balancing humility and overconfidence and confidence, yeah, I should it. say. Um, it, 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 this is a topic. I, if I were to write a sequel book, it, it's one that I would very much want to have feature prominently in the book. Uh, well, let's use a sports analogy. I'm not a big sports fan, but um, my co-author, Dan Gardner, is a big hockey fan. And um, he's a Canadian, um, and I was actually born originally in Canada myself, but I'm U.S. naturalized. Uh, but the Ottawa Senators were apparently in a Stanley Cup final one year, and they were down three to one in the in in the, in the series. Best of seven series. And best of seven series, right? And um, some reporter thrust a microphone in, in front of the, the coach's mouth and said, "Hey, coach, you think you got a chance?" And the coach, <laughs> uh, instead of um, doing what coaches are supposed to do and say, of course, we're going to kick butt. We can do it. We just went three in a row. We've done it before. We'll do it again. He he went into super forecaster mode. And he said, well, what's the base rate of success of teams that are down three to one? (laughs) Doesn't look very good, does it? It's a long shot. It's a long shot. (laughs) This is not what coaches or leaders are supposed to do. And it it raises the question about what, what are the conditions under which leaders are supposed to be liars? Yeah. And what's the answer? Well, that, that, that's why I said that the next book would wrestle with this. But we do talk about it in the super forecasting book at some length. And, 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 and we have some uh, interesting, I think, military examples and some other examples as well of uh, where, where um, it, you know, the, the, the need for leadership and the need for confidence are in some degree of tension. And the need, the, need, the need for circumspection and the need for confidence are in, are in tension with each other. Yeah, I, I'm. It's always uh, fascinated me how hard it is for a leader to say ex post, I made a mistake, or a pundit to say I made a mistake. Uh, m- most of them don't. They they had they say, well, I had that in mind, and here's the word that suggests that I knew that, or I didn't know this piece of information. If I'd known that, of course, I wouldn't have da da da, or just. My favorite. It wasn't a mistake. <laughs> Everyone else thinks it's a mistake. They're wrong. It was a great thing. So you get the whole range. But I, I think there's a psycho. You know, you're a psychologist. I think the psychological challenge of admitting a mistake and being, you know, it's one thing to say, well, I know it's a long shot, but I won't say it because that would be bad for the team. I think I, I'm afraid to say. I, I suspect a lot of great leaders don't even think that it's a long shot. They just say we're going to win, and they actually believe it. 
Right, and and there's a question about whether you would prefer to have a leader who believe who is capable of self-deception or a leader who is capable of being two-faced and has one set of private private numbers and a, and a set of public yeah. numbers. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's talk about the wisdom of crowds, which you referred to a few times in the book, and you've just we implicitly talked about it a minute ago. Talk about how you aggregated uh, uh, folks and how you avoided the cloning problem or the groupthink problem in in your. Uh, in your in your estimates, right, well, there was a big argument uh, in our research group after uh, early on about whether it would be good, better for our forecasters to work as individuals or work as teams. And the anti-team faction correctly pointed it to the dangers of groupthink and all the other dysfunctions of groups. Anyone who's ever worked in a team knows how bad teams can be. Bullying, um, all, all all of the above. Um, and then there was another group that said, look, there are conditions under which teams can be more than the sum of their parts. And if we give them the right guidance on how to work as a team, they can, they can deliver some great stuff. Uh, and we resolved it by running an experiment. And it turned out uh, at the end of the first year, uh, the teams were better. Um, significantly better. How much better? Maybe 10%. You know, it, what we're talking about is many small factors and a few big ones that cumulatively produce a really big, big advantage for the super forecaster teams. The super forecasters do better because they have certain natural and acquired talent advantages. They do better partly because they work in a cognitively enriched environment with other super forecasters. They do, partly, they do better partly because they've given them a lot of training and guidance on how to do probability estimation, and then they've taught each other. And for that matter, the super forecasters have taught us things. Uh, so our, our training has become better by virtue of the, the, the feedback from the super forecasters. And then finally, they do better because of the algorithms. Yeah, one thing I want to make clear, which we didn't stress enough, uh, these folks who are doing this, and as you said, there's a lot of forecasts and they're due it, you know, on an ongoing basis. These are not people doing this as a full-time job. You know, these are not, and these aren't professors of uh, political science, say, forecasting what's going to happen in in the South China Sea. These are just really smart, everyday people who are doing this on the side, Correct. Well, I wish we had more professors of political science. We have a few, but we don't have as some many as I would have friends. hoped. Some of my best uh, friends are professors of political science. I should add that, but, but go ahead. Well, some, Sorry. Of, some of mine, too. <laughs> um, right, right. Well, uh, they, they're, what, who are the super forecasters? So the media like to uh, focus on the super forecasters who are the most counterintuitive. So there's Ann Kilkenny, who is um, a housewife in, in Wasilla, Alaska. And there's a there's a, a social work caseworker in Pittsburgh, and there is a person who works as a pharmacist in Maryland. Uh, other super forecasters work as uh, analysts on Wall Street, or were previously analysts in the intelligence community, or work in Silicon Valley, or are really adept software programmers who develop uh, interesting tools for helping people decide uh, which problems to focus on and how to how to winnow media sources and so forth. So <laughs> super forecasters are really quite varied. Uh, some, some of them, you know, would fit more your, your, the stereotype of what you'd expect a super forecaster to look like. Uh, some Silicon Valley, Wall Street, IQ of 180 type and, and, and others look a lot more like intelligent, thoughtful citizens who you run across in everyday life. Um, and it's interesting how well they get along. It, it's, 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 it's actually a wonderful dynamic to behold in, in the super teams. Um, they, they are, they are, they are a diverse group. Um, they have, they're, they're, and they're very clever at, at working out what, what their sources of comparative advantage are in, in dealing with problems. And 
uh, allocating labor. They, they, they create, in effect, many organizations. They create, in effect, what they created were many intelligence agencies uh, that were generating probability estimates more accurate than those that were coming out of many intelligence analysts. But you said that you gave them advice. You didn't just throw them into teams and say, good luck, hope you work it out. You did some very thoughtful things that the book describes to get them to perform uh, effectively as teams rather than as clones or group things. We did. We did. We, we did. Because there's always a tension in groups. To, to, to get to the truth in groups, you often have to ask questions that might offend people a little bit. So mastering the art of uh, disagreeing without being disagreeable and mastering what the art of what uh, some consultants in California call precision questioning. Uh, we found that to be a very useful tool to transfer to our uh, super to our to, to all of our teams with regular forecasting teams and super forecasting teams. You know, because we have thousands of forecasters in many experimental conditions here. Give give us a two sentence description of precision questioning. What is that? Well, um, when when someone makes a claim like uh, soccer is declining in in popularity as the world's most popular pastime. Uh, you would want to figure out what exactly they mean by key terms, by what are the things that are included in pastimes, and what do they mean by decline. And you, you want to get them to be more specific than people normally are. And when you start probing people, they're often unable to become more specific. And they often, when they, they, then they feel when they're being probed, they get they feel irritated and they think, you know, quit bugging me about this. Um, so super forecasting teams have learned to push the limits of precision but maintain reasonable etiquette inside the group. And I think that's crucial for, for getting at this you know, more underlying question you've been, you've been raising throughout the conversation, which is what are the limits of precision? When does precision become pseudo-precision? And, when you start using and, you, and you, don't, you don't know until you, 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 you test it. Well, the simple answer is when you start using decimal points, but, um, <laughs> uh, I want to say 73.2. Well, you know, he, he, I think that's right. Uh, I, I think when you look at well, how many degrees of uncertainty on, let's, let's just say for sake of argument that we treat the probability scale as having a hundred points along it rather than being infinitely divisible. Let's just say it's a hundred point probability scale, which is the one we actually used in, in the tournament. How many degrees of uncertainty were super forecasters collectively usefully distinguishing when they make their forecasts? You can estimate that statistically by rounding off their forecast attempts and so forth. Right. And I think our best estimate is they can distinguish somewhere between about 15 and 20 degrees of uncertainty along a probability scale. Uh, most people distinguish about five or four, or somewhere between four and five. Uh, we're almost out of time. I, I want to get to an economics issue that you raise uh, in the book, which is uh, often on my mind, uh, which is – I'm going to couch it the way uh, listeners here would expect, which is we passed this enormous – seemingly enormous, you can debate whether it was enormous or not, because there's always a debate after the fact of whether the base conditions even held. We passed a seemingly enormous stimulus package uh, to fight the recession. And there were some predictions that were made, sort of, about what that would achieve. And uh, there were people on one side of the fence who said it was going to end unemployment over a certain period of time. Other people said it's going to make things worse. A lot of people just said, oh, I really like it or I really don't without making any kind of even beginnings of a quantitative prediction. But then the dust settled and <laughs> afterward, everybody said I was right on either side of the debate. <laughs> and Sounds I, familiar. <laughs> I find it deeply troubling 
that uh, in economics in particular, but it's elsewhere, that there's no accountability. And if there's no accountability, why do we even begin to pay attention? Uh, If there's no authoritative way, even mildly authoritative way to assess whether a prediction is accurate, whether a model is accurate, whether a policy prescription is fulfilled – how how can we make any progress? I don't and I don't see it in my profession. And you suggest the possibility of some what some ways we might uh, hold people's feet to the fire and at least have some accountability. Uh, how might that work? I, I think you might be referring to the proposal of adversarial collaboration tournaments, yes. and we use the example of Niall Ferguson and Paul Krugman and the debate over quantitative easing. Yep. Um, Right. Well, I, I think a great, it's a great model. It's, 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 I, it has some utility in science. I think it has some utility in public policy debates. We're running an Iranian nuclear uh, accord tournament now on GJ Open. Uh, here's, here's one of the key things you, you would do. E- each side would have a chance to nominate five or ten questions that it thinks it has a comparative advantage in answering. The questions have to be relevant to the underlying issue, and they have to pass the clairvoyance test, which means it has to be rigorously scorable for accuracy after the fact. Um, and uh, victory has a pretty clear meaning in this kind of context. It means it, you, you not only can answer my question, you not only can answer your questions yes. better than I can, you can answer my questions yep. better than I can. And that, 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 that leaves me in an awkward situation because I, I can't simply say, well, you pose some stupid questions. I have to say, well, my questions were stupid too. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's much more awkward. Um, now, of course, pundits are going to be very reluctant to engage in a game like this. I mean, why would you want to engage in a it's game in which it's all, yeah, the, the best possible outcome is it's not very, it's not, not nearly attractive enough to justify the risk. The only way we're ever going to induce high status pundits to agree to participate in level playing field forecasting tournaments in which they pit their predictions about the future against their competitors is if the public demands it. Uh, and if there is a groundswell demand for that, if pundits feel that their credibility is beginning to suffer because they're refusing to offer more precise and testable predictions vis-a-vis their competitors, uh, then I think that would be the that would be the only force on earth capable of inducing them to do it. Yeah, I think uh, there's a shame factor. I think an external source, maybe maybe this program could shame some people into participating, but. It's an interesting uh, question. One of the challenges, I think, in economics, and it's somewhat of a question, I think, when you think about it carefully in, in other fields as well, is is what are you measuring? So if what we really care about, say, it's not the whole picture, but if we're worried about whether the minimum wage, say, causes unemployment, uh, one reason people would say, well, I can't. I can't participate in that because there's so many other factors besides an increase in minimum wage. I can't guarantee that they're not going to be in place. And then I want we to just say, want a probability. What? <laughs> we just want a probability. Yeah, but I, but I just want to say if you can't, then you should shut your mouth because you're just talking. I mean, there's no, and I do it too. I shouldn't just make it. I shouldn't say it's just them. I, I, but I don't pretend mine's scientific in the way that they sometimes do with empirical data. I just. I'm trying to rely on my principles, which I think are pretty reliable, but I'm probably at risk of fooling myself there, too. Oh, I, I think the minimum wage would be a wonderful example of where adversarial collaboration could work because there are so many states and municipalities taking independent actions on that front. Yeah, maybe something I can um, enable if I, if I play my cards right. Uh, my guest today has been Philip Tetlock. Philip, thanks for being part of Econ Talk, and uh, listeners, thanks for putting up with some of that uh, electronic noise. We're trying to make it better. Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun.
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.